0: Welcome to the Food Web, a program about ecological agriculture, food justice, and how innovative farmers, policymakers, and food entrepreneurs are revitalizing the food system from seed to fork. My name is Artie Mangan, and I'm the director of the Bioneers Restorative Food Systems Program. 78 to 98% of livestock in the U.S are raised on CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, factory farming at its worst. CAFOs, where thousands of animals are confined to a small space, are gross contributors to water and air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. The massive amounts of manure produced emit methane and nitrous oxide, greenhouse gases even more damaging than carbon dioxide. In contrast, Roaming herds of wild elk, deer, and bison held in balance by predators traditionally created a regenerative effect on perennial grasslands that not only created deep fertility, but also, as part of that fertility cycle, sequestered carbon. There are ecologically minded cattle ranchers mimicking that system that are redistributing excessive carbon from the atmosphere where it is dangerously throwing the climate out of balance and depositing it back in the soil where it has multiple benefits. Rebecca Burgess is the founder of the Fibershed Project, developing regional wool production to build local economy while reducing pollution. Rebecca has developed a climate beneficial certification for her suppliers to drive demand for climate conscious consumption.
1: We all know that we're today living in the biosphere. We are within one carbon pool as we sit here today and you have imbibed in some form of carbon, whether you're wearing or eating it in form of a carbohydrate. Carbon and water occupies the biosphere. Carbon's mutable, though, and so it moves through five pools. And the next pool that we've just been talking about in the prior panel was the oceans. And carbon, because of its mutability, shows up as carbonic acid. We all know the repercussions of the oceans, the single largest carbon pool on our planet, trying to absorb our stored sunlight burning processes. (laughs) Which brings me to the lithosphere, which is the third carbon pool that I'll address, which is where fossil carbon is stored, ancient plant material, condensed sunlight. And that is where we've been extracting what we have used for industrial agriculture and manufacturing systems and plastics plastic clothing, plastic material culture. And then there is the soil carbon pool. This is a pool that we'll be talking about more today. It's the second largest pool on our planet out of the five. It contains more carbon than the atmosphere and biosphere combined. And so really small changes in how we manage soil or manage for soil carbon are levers to massive capability for drawdown. So what you would think is a minute transformation of land management can actually equate to large climate impact due to the size of the soil carbon pool. And then the last pool is the atmosphere, and it's the place we concentrate so much of our policy and governmental lens due to the fact that we're focused, or we have been historically, on emissions reduction strategies, because it's very easy to see that we're burning fossil carbon, it's going to the atmosphere and it's becoming carbon dioxide. So this panel is really focused on this opportunity, which the Northeast Organic Farmers Association and um, Jack Kitteridge aggregated a series of peer reviewed data points. And he put together this idea that if we were to draw down over 50 PPM or parts per million, that would equate to 106 gigatons of carbon that we need to draw down from the atmosphere to reach a safe level of CO2 so the long wave radiation from the sun can escape. So we, you know, resolve the greenhouse gas effect. If we remove 106.25 gigatons, a gigaton just for reference is a billion metric tons, and a metric ton is a thousand kilograms. So we're talking about like the Ayers Rock in Australia, just a few of those. (laughs) Um, But we do have to, we can do this, because when you look at land clearing, since uh, modern agriculture took place, especially since the Molberg plow was invented in the 1750s, about that time, we have lost around 136 gigatons from our soils alone. And Ratan Lal from Ohio State University said, we've basically in the United States lost 50 to 80% of the carbon in our U.S. soils. So think about it. We need to remove 106 gigatons, but we've already lost 136 gigatons from our soils globally, which means our soils have a carbon debt. Our atmosphere is gushing with carbon. The carbon over our heads is just literally in the wrong place. So this opportunity from FAO and the UN, they've stated that if we actually average our sequestration goal by, let's say we Take all of the world's grasslands. There's 8.3 billion acres of grassland, 3.8 billion acres of cropland today, not under concrete or development or urban zones. So, if we average a sequestration or a carbon cycle enhancement of 2.6 tons per acre on our grasslands per year, if we were to draw down 2.6 tons per acre per year, which is by peer-reviewed standards, very doable. And if we were to move 0.5 tons on our cropland down, which if we're to move to organic conservation tillage methods, no-till, hopefully no-till organic, we could easily pull down 0.5 tons per acre per year. This would average out to per year 23.7 gigatons that our agricultural lands managed already by human beings. This is not conservation lands, open space districts. This is just land already under management by human beings. So we're already out there doing stuff to it. So if we were to enhance our management towards a 23.7 gigaton drawdown per year, then we end up getting this whole climate change problem done and ameliorated within five years.
0: It's rare to encounter any good news about climate change. But as Rebecca points out, there's reason for real optimism. Soils have a carbon deficit, and with the right management practices, can capture and store vast quantities of atmospheric carbon and turn the clock back on climate change. Ariel Greenwood is a self-described feral agrarian who manages a herd of cattle while restoring ecosystems. Her holistic land management is a working model of climate-friendly ranching, using ruminant animal disturbance to encourage biodiversity and sequester carbon. Carbon is the building block of soil life and essential for deep fertility. Arielle combines her love of working with large animals with a passion for restoring natural landscapes.
2: Briefly, how I got involved in this movement I started working on farms as a 16 year old, so like a decade ago, and first diversified vegetable farms. And slowly, through studying agroecology in school and through a lot of really meaningful mentorship and some some like good books and podcasts, I started to understand the role of herbivores, of of ruminants in grassland ecosystems. So I began to reorient my agricultural practice and interest towards working on a broader scale and working with with animals, which props to veggie farmers out there, you know, bending down and doing a lot of tractor work can be very punishing and I think I I chickened out (laughs) early. So these days I run around mostly on a, a bunch of hills with a bunch of cows. I appreciate the connection between we all eat three times a day, and it calls to mind the Wendell Berry quote that I'm sure a lot of us here are familiar with, which is that eating is an agricultural act. And I think it was Michael Pollan who maybe first put the finer point on it that eating is also an ecological act, and that's a lot of what we're talking about today, because you know, even if you feel like you have no connection to land every time you eat something or is, you know, or every time you put on a garment of clothing, whether it's wool or hemp or you know, a natural fiber or, or something derived from um, the lithosphere, we're all influencing we're all active agents in our environment for better or for worse. So that's kind of what I try to meditate on a lot. And, and I try to live as close to, to that as possible. Grazing is my form of direct action. And it'll be interesting to see that change over time. But, you know, on this panel, I I feel like I'm kind of representing the voice of people who are scrappy and young and ambitious and desiring to apprentice to the trades of regenerative agriculture. You know, that kind of brings me to, to my notion of what some of the barriers are. And I know we'll circle back to this a little bit, but something that's become very apparent to me is that if you're trying to get into a lot of agriculture, especially ranching, it's very hard. Ranching is, is a very colonial gesture of pastoralism. And so it's it's bound up in a lot of racial issues and class issues and historical land grabs and so on. And so when you are trying to do the very simple human act of moving animals across a landscape for the benefit of yourself and the critters and the land, you very quickly step into all of these uh, invisible systems. And I think a lot of those systems are what we need to tackle head-on and begin to deconstruct so that we can reconstruct and regenerate. But my, you know, broadly speaking, my vision for for people and for land is just that our very broken relationship between humans and animals, what we eat and what we wear, and our surrounding bioregions, you know, wherever you happen to live, whether it's coastal redwoods or, you know, inland Mediterranean grasslands or northeastern forests or whatever the case may be that that we can repair that relationship in a way that is nurturing to all entities i have some ideas up my sleeve about how to do that and a lot more to learn but we don't have 20 or 30 years to figure this out it's not for our kids to solve it's actually for everybody alive eating and breathing and driving around on this earth to figure out that's kind of what i think about when i'm out in the fields and Broadly speaking, though, I think a big part of the problem is that the very ways that we need to be interacting with our landscape, whether as eaters or producers or some combination of both, are sometimes difficult to do. It's hard to access land. It's hard to access animals. It's hard to access capital. It's easy to access beef, though, in this area. But I'll leave it at that for now.
0: That was Ariel Greenwood. Rebecca Burgess's Fibershed project is revitalizing local economy by establishing climate-friendly farming and processing standards.
1: It seems like the theme that pulls us all together is that we need to tune into how, we're, how we engage with the carbon cycle. How are each of us managing carbon on a day-to-day basis? So we can do it by what we choose to eat and what we wear. The reason I'm focused on the wear part Well, because my background is as a natural dyer, a grower of natural dyes. A lot of time spent with Kat Anderson and the ethos of proto-agriculture and tending the wild. And the ideas put forth around 13,000 years of Coast Miwok tradition where people tended landscapes in a way where when my ancestors arrived in coastal California in the 1890s, it looked like a bucolic garden. And so I my ideas around agriculture are this: like, what do we do to mimic historically beautiful and amazing ways of being with land? And as a natural dyer, I found a lot of dye plants that were also native plants. And I started a model called restoration dye gardening for school children. And that was my action-based research in my master's degree. So how to help young people understand native flora, and then also give them a means to engage with a regenerative, at the time I didn't, that word was not a buzzword, a regenerative form of color, because all the color of the chairs, the upholstery, everything you're wearing is all lithosphere-based carbon. So there is, unless someone is wearing a plant-based form of color that they're conscious of, you're all wearing a fossil carbon cocktail mixed with heavy metals and endocrine disruptors. You know, the skin is the biggest organ of the body, so to be gentle with ourselves, to be gentle with this planet, we have to become very conscious of how our choices to what we wear and eat are, again, how are we managing carbon, and how are we managing this cycling of carbon through the five pools. So wearing lithosphere-based dyes, lithosphere-based nylons, capoline, polypropylene, all the stuff you go outdoors to enjoy nature in, it's a very counterintuitive experience for me to go see people looking at birds with binoculars while they're wearing head-to-toe plastic. And I live in Marin, where two-thirds of the county is open space, so I run into that a lot. And a lot of lululemon yoga pants too. And um, sorry if you're wearing those. So that's why I'm in this because by 2020, you know, we're about 70% of our wardrobe will end up lithosphere-based. It's actually the trajectory, the momentum, and the emphasis of the culture at large. And a lot of it has to do with the anonymity of the supply chains and the anonymity that exists within the raw material source of the clothing. So the reason why I'm involved in a fiber shed concept is the bioregionalism of material culture, which I adopted from the people who lived in the landscape I'm on for 13,000 years, which was the Coast Miwok. And this idea that your bioregion is a place to care for intimately and to take deep, deep care of for many generations ahead of you. So how do we do that? And the one way i am been so excited, I'm so excited about carbon because I'm figuring out that the more you have in the soil, the more productive everything is, it's energy. Aldo Leopold's quote of, you know, this whole system is just energy flowing through plants, animals, soil, and ecosystem. This is just sunlight moving through the system. Well, the sunlight moving through the system, it's The sunlight ignites the carbon cycle in each leaf, and it breaks apart the carbon and the oxygen. The plants release the oxygen, they hold the carbon, they construct themselves out of carbon. When Guido said, I like to let the land rest, what he's doing, is allowing the grasses to rebuild themselves out of atmospheric carbon. And this is why grazing is so important. And I, as a row cropper, I would never go to where, I'd never go to Pepperwood or your land and till that and put it in indigo. We have to know in our bioregional sensibilities, the proper place for animal grazing and the proper place for row crop production and be very sensitive about what we plant where and how we derive material culture. Grazing as a whole is not bad. Row crop agriculture, not bad. It's the idea is to become more refined and nuanced in our understanding of where we place these systems and how we engage with these systems over time. So I'm not really a cow-spiracyist. The question is, where's the cow? Who's managing it? What is the end goal? And I loved your article for holistic, the holistic management piece for Bioneers, which was, you know, I'm not eating meat for the sake of meat. I'm watching Nacella pulchra revegetate. I'm watching perennial bunch grasses come back because of the way I graze the animals. So cows have the same internal flora. Their guts are the same as the elk that used to roam here. It's almost 99% identical um, microflora in the gut lining of a cow, um, as it is the same to, the, to an elk. So, and the elk used to roam, and biomimetic grazing is part of this mission. So again, we have a lot to do to reverse the effects of industrial ag, but being blanket-statemented about wrong and right, I think that's, that's why we're here today, to become more refined and nuanced in our approach.
0: Guido Frosini, a dynamic young carbon rancher and co-owner of True Grass Farms, is balancing natural cycles of soil, grass, and pulse grazing on 1,200 acres in Marin.
3: We can produce so much more on the same amount of land. There's marginal landscapes. Those are the ones that need to be grazed. The most fertile landscapes should be you know, cultivated, not constantly and in rotation. The great thing about grazing animals is something that Joel has said, they democratize fertility, right? They're going to be grazing in the valleys and bringing it back on the hills. So that's the importance of some of the herbivores that we have, not only the microfauna that they have to bring back into brittle environments, the deserts, to reinvigorate and to bring more bacteria, which is the base of life. Don't forget to buy your local proteins. The solution that I see for the next step of labeling proteins, if you look at TomCat's website, the TomCat with a K educational foundation on their website, they actually show the monitoring that they're doing every year on their ranch. And so if you're buying their meat, you can actually see how much biomass index they're producing every year and like photosynthetic markers. And you're looking at water infiltration and their carbon levels. That is for me what the ingredients behind a pack. That's what I would like to see when I'm buying meat. Because we have the technology, it's very easy to do.
0: Ariel Greenwood,
2: I'm very privileged to be in the situation that I'm in, both as an animal manager and simultaneous apprentice for Holistic Agate Pepperwood Preserve, which is distinct from a lot of private ranch land, which has a lot of red tape relative to liability. But my vision overall, you know, without getting too into the weeds and details of it, is is one where we have, you know, community-supported grazing. And that right now can look, as Guido alluded to, just buying the product of grassland restoration, which happens to be very delicious grassland-fed beef, which is high energy. You know, I see grazing, especially surrounding urban areas, as a way to kind of repair the relationship between urban and rural areas and between, of course, ourselves and animals and, and grassland. And, and grassland in, in my county, in Sonoma County, is, is very threatened by the wine industry. and threatened by development because as real estate prices are are raised around here due to scarcity, um, that encroaches, as we all know, into our surrounding areas. And those are areas where we produce food and we produce ecosystem services and where we. We have water, you know, and we want to hold water and we want to hold carbon. So obviously it's all very connected. We have, what is it, CCC? Is that California Conservation Corps? Something like that. Maybe we need like a, a CGC, California Grazing Corps, perhaps. <laughs> and uh, more opportunities for people to really be active agents in what is not just their food system, but also their ecosystem, our agro-ecosystem. There are solutions at hand, which is simply to vote with your dollar. And I think like many of you, that seems, it's a little unsatisfying to me, but to get to the very participatory ecology that I think a lot of us crave as a, a species that was born of grassland and savanna, we have to you know, cover our bases first and observe the order of operations of we first must support the people doing the work monetarily and forge those relationships with them and with, with that landscape and then lean into that further. There's a lot of folks talking about regenerative agriculture. I am not seeing the willingness to participate that I think we so desperately need. We just need more people showing up, both with their wallets and also with their willingness to do the work.
0: Rebecca Burgess.
2: High-level solutions related to what you
1: wear. First-tier strategy is just to actually reduce the amount that you're actually consuming related to fiber. It's not a non-perishable item. So it can last in your closet for quite some time. And when you do see an opportunity to purchase something, even if it's not, <laughs> I know this sounds, everyone wants it to look cute on their body, but for instance, um, the North Face is going to be issuing in the fall of 2017, a climate beneficial wool beanie from a ranch. A largest, second largest ranch in California that has an active carbon farm plan where we are measuring the greenhouse gas, both reductions and the carbon sequestered under where those sheep are grazing in those soils. And we are building soil organic matter each year with compost applications that are happening due to compost being made on ranch. So, when a major brand or an artist, we have plenty of artisanal businesses in our fiber shed, which is 19 counties around where you're sitting, 15 small businesses have generated from an urban rural cross-pollination between artists and farmers. There's plenty of ways to engage at the artisanal level, but when a major brand gets involved and issues something like this climate beneficial wool beanie, that's the time to ignite your wallet because you're creating a state change in the system. And there are many ways to create state changes. And I would just say, while we still are under this, the rule of capitalism for now, and, you know, we do not have a resource-based economy, we have a monetary-based economy, use the dollars now. You know, it's one thing to say, I'm not going to get involved in these systems, but you're involved in the system and it is what it is. So use the money very prodigiously and carefully and use it to ignite state change so when a brand puts something out go buy that if you eat meat buy it from the most responsible producers because it might seem like an old 1990s strategy like just buy your way out of the climate crisis let's let that go we actually do have a way to buy our way towards soil carbon building and soil organic matter but we need to support the people on the land there's a reason why there aren't a lot of boots on the ground it's not highly paid so we need to reinforce the system towards regeneration. And it will take, you know, let go of the old paradigm. This is a new paradigm, but we do need to infuse it with our support consciously, monetarily. And I would say, yes, come out and get connected to the bioregion where you are and learn who's feeding you and who's clothing you. You do have those opportunities. There's 52 fibershed communities internationally now
2: organizing around fiber systems.
0: Ariel Greenwood.
2: Pioneers is all about like making friends and connecting, and I would love if we could all leave with the notion of making at least one new friend who may or may not be here, and that is a farmer or rancher <laughs> in your neighborhood or in your county, and understand their practices, ask questions about your ecology, and then ask those questions, pose those questions to the people producing food in your ecosystem find out why they're doing what they're doing, find out what they could be doing differently or better if they had support. You can be a customer, but also an integral part of their business, not just as a customer, but as, as their champion.
0: Check back again for future Food Web podcasts about the challenges, triumphs, and innovations of developing a food system that nourishes people and the planet.